0: Please open your Bibles, if you would, to Second Chronicles chapter 24, we study tonight, verses 15 to 27. Second Chronicles 24, 15, to the end of the chapter, verse 27. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word, but Jehoiada grew old and full of days and died. He was 130 years old at his death, and they buried him in the city of David among the kings because he had done good in Israel and towards God in his house. Now after the death of Jehoiada, the princes of Judah came and paid homage to the king, and then the king listened to them. And they abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the Asherim and the idols. And wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this guilt of theirs. Yet he sent prophets among them to bring them back to the Lord. These testified against them, but they would not pay attention. Then the Spirit of God clothed Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest. And he stood above the people and said to them, Thus says God, Why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. But they conspired against him, and by command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness that Jehoiada, Zechariah's father, had shown him but killed his son. And when he was dying, he said, may the Lord see and avenge. At the end of the year, the army of the Syrians came up against Joash. They came to Judah and Jerusalem and destroyed all the princes of the people from among the people and sent all their spoil to the king of Damascus. Though the army of the Syrians had come with few men, the Lord delivered into their hands a very great army because Judah had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. Thus they executed judgment on Joash. When they had departed from him, leaving him severely wounded, his servants conspired against him because of the blood of the son of Jehoiada, the priest, and killed him on his bed. So he died, and they buried him in the city of David, but they did not bury him in the tombs of the kings. Those who conspired against him were Zabad, the son of Shimeath, the Ammonite, and Jehozabad, the son of Shimrith the Moabite. Accounts of his sons and of the many oracles against him of the rebuilding of the house of God are written in the story of the book of the kings and Amaziah, his son, reigned in his place. The grass withers, the flowers fall, and the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. And some of these accounts, Lord, are pretty grim, but sin is a grim thing. So make us wise about ourselves and about salvation. Cause us to make certain our conversion, our faith in Jesus through the blood that he shed so that we will be forgiven of our sins. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Between my 16th and 18th birthdays, there was a series of events that modestly parallels the experience of Judas King Joash. When I was 16 years old, I attended a Christian revival in the gymnasium of my public high school. That was the 70s for you and I accepted the invitation to receive Christ. I came forward and I prayed for salvation. I soon became involved in my high school Christian ministry and at 17, I was asked to lead it. It's not shocking, I was both the captain of the football team and the captain of the Christian group. Those often go together. Shortly before my 18th birthday, however, I transitioned to college and I moved into a dormitory where I knew not a single soul On the entire campus, a university of 50,000 people, I knew not a single person there. And the situation had changed. I particularly was no longer walking in the door to my loving and virtuous parents that had had a great influence on me all my life. I, I didn't have any Christian friends or fellowship. We actually had moved to another part of the country. And I was swept almost immediately into the sinful life, then typical of college life. Now, that spring, I traveled to Florida with my new fraternity brothers for spring break. uh, Be assured, it was not a high point of my life, but I remember, what I'm remembering is I walked into the, actually, we were checking out of our hotel when another university was checking in, and there were some girls who were Christian friends of mine from my high school, and they were going to that college. And shall we say, I was in a condition that did not bear testimony to faith in Jesus Christ. And I'll never forget the look on their faces as they saw me there. It didn't take uh, much to realize they were thinking he is no longer a Christian. Now, they may have assumed that I had lost my salvation, but in fact, I was all along what we might call an unconverted Christian. Under emotional pressure, I had professed faith in Jesus, and then I had sincerely tried to live up to that moment. And I had done, at least outwardly, pretty well for the two years that remained of my time with my parents. But once all of that was stripped away, there were no longer godly friends, there were no longer the, the caring influence of my present parents, it proved impossible for me to maintain my Christian professor, in fact, I, profession. I look back on that time in my life and I am quite sure that I never made the decision to walk away from Jesus, from Christianity, from the Bible. I simply forgot about it all, unconsciously and virtually, virtually immediately. Well, it is anachronistic to call Judas King Joash a Christian. Since he lived 800 years before the coming of Christ, he reigned from 836 to 796 B.C., and yet there are similarities between his lapsed faith in the Lord and the one that I and many others have experienced. The similarities are significant. Young Joash was brought up in as spiritually beneficial a context as was possible in his day. He was a prince of the house of David, a personal heir of God's promises. He was raised in the home of the high priest of Israel and his wife. He spent the entirety of his young years in the complex of Solomon's temple. But like me and many others, when a change was experienced... His unconverted status was revealed. For Joash, this change was not going off to college. It was the death of his great mentor and uncle, Jehoiada the high priest. While professing Christians have to face challenges and changes to their lives, at some time the problem arises when they have not actually been converted when they lack the inward spiritual reality and the power from God that change often demands. Jesus meant what he said, what he declared, you must be born again. And so it's possible to claim and even act on faith in the Lord without the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, without conversion. In the end, it is not possible to remain a Christian. It certainly is not possible to receive the Lord's salvation unless... Our hearts have been made new by the sovereign grace of the Lord. Well, the event that revealed the true condition of Joash's heart was the death of his guardian, Jehoiada the high priest. And his concluding narrative makes very clear his singular status as a great man of God. Look at verse 15. Jehoiada grew old and full of days. He was 130 years old at his death. Now, in the Old Testament, extraordinarily long, extraordinary long life is a sign of God's blessing on a valued servant. And Jehoiada's great age, when he died, stands out even among the greats of the Old Testament. We, we, we can easily underestimate this man. He outlived Moses, who lived 120 years. He outlived Aaron, 110. He outlived Joshua, also 110. And like Samuel, Jehoiada stood alone in his time between God's covenant people and absolute chaos. He navigated the perilous years in which Athaliah had tyrannized the nation. That required unusual judgment for a high priest of the Lord even to remain alive. For seven years, Jehoiada hid the sole remaining heir of the house of David, and then he struck boldly when the opportunity was right for a palace coup. There can be not the slightest doubt that Jehoiada raised young Joash with a keen sense of his covenant heritage. That explains why when he came to the throne under the tutelage of Jehoiada, his main initiative was the restoration of the temple at such great cost. Jehoiada's living memories span back all the way to the golden age of King Solomon. He was born when Solomon was king. He saw the reign of seven kings. And so the counsel he would have provided Joash was gave an ideal foundation for a reign that would be wholly dedicated to the Lord. Now, when Jehoiada died, we're told the people recognized his great statue. They provided him the honor of being buried with the Davidic kings, and they buried him in the city of David among the kings because he had done good in Israel towards God and his house, verse 16. Now, it is hard to imagine a better Old Testament epitaph than that. Jehoiada is the only priest in the entire history of Israel to be buried in the tombs of the kings. That is a fitting tribute to his role in saving the royal line. Andrew Stewart notes another point of praise. He says it's a tribute to his meekness. That though he took the risk associated with the kingship when he overthrew Athaliah, he never sought to usurp the role of the king from young King Joash. He was a careful observer of all the word of God. Oh, how much Joash owed to this great and ancient servant of God. How valuable must those lessons have been that this king would have learned at his uncle's side. And yet events would prove that Joash actually learned very little from Jehoiada. The mention of Jehoiada's death in verse 15 ominously begins with the word, but. That signals a note of warning. Under Jehoiada's counsel, Joash honored the Lord and restored his temple. But how different things would be once Jehoiada was gone. And the events that follow prove that for all of his spiritual heritage, Joash was not a converted follower of the Lord. For him to act in the way that he did after Jehoiada dies, show that even the greatest spiritual heritage cannot prevail with a heart that has not been changed by the grace of God. Matthew Henry summarizes, the little religion that Joash had was all buried in Jehoiada's grave. And after his death, both king and kingdom miserably degenerated. Well, the first thing we see here is the revealing of the unconverted heart of Joash. When I say he was an unconverted Christian, I'm referring to one who goes by the name, someone who's known by reputation and by association as one of the people of God. But there's three things in this early account that reveals that he is in fact unconverted. And the first apparently took place right after Jehoiada died and was buried for the king was approached. And here's the first sign that he actually was an unconverted Christian is that he was immediately swayed by the influence of men. He was swayed by the influence of men. Verse 17. Now, after the death of Jehoiada, the princes of Judah came and paid homage to the king. And then the king listened to them. Now, we're not told the background of these civic leaders. By the way, the Hebrew word prince means leader in a generic way, ruler. But from their actions, I think we can safely assume that these were people who had been in favor when Athaliah was in charge, and they'd had to go underground when Jehoiada was there. I think it's quite sure that they couldn't get anywhere near young Joash when Jehoiada was in charge. In fact, maybe Jehoiada overly sheltered the young king. But Jehoiada was gone. And their strategy was very cunning. They came with praise. They paid homage. The Hebrew means they made obeisance to him. They came and they prostrated themselves. We can assume that Jehoiada did not prostrate himself, nor should he have. But before the Davidic king opened, they did. They treated him like an oriental despot. They made obeisance before him. And we can imagine them expressing their delight that Joash, why, he now was free to chart his own course. And they would have praised his ability to act as his own man, not to to do as if he were a little boy still. You can can act as your own man. That's the counsel they would have given him. And, And their flattery, we read, won the king's heart. And of course, it was their counsel that then would rule. So it turned out, verse 17 says, the king listened to them. Now, even the most godly leaders can have their heads turned by praise, especially when they feel often criticized and most do. But Proverbs twenty-seven twenty-one is right when it describes the flattery of men as a crucible. It says a man is thereby tested by his praise. Because people in positions of leadership who are praised need to be wary and on guard about that praise. For Joash to fall to the praise of men so soon after Jehoiada died shows how little impact his great mentor had on his heart. Appealing to the king's vanity, these princes urged a new direction for Judah and he followed their lead. What one of the things that reveals a young Christian goes through a change. They find them, he or she is on their own. One of the first tests is how do they respond when the counsel of the world comes, when there is flattery, when there is praise? How do we respond to the counsel of men? It is a test of our conversion. Now, his second failure, or his first failure, may be dismissed at least a little bit by youth and inexperience, but the second movement here. Reveals his true nature and it is inexcusable. Secondly, he was easily led astray from the Lord. First, he's easily falling prey. He listens to the counsel of man. But then secondly, he easily is led astray from the Lord. It becomes immediately clear what kind of influence these new royal advisors will exert because verse 18 says that Joash abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the Asherim and the idols. Now dare I say it took considerable bravado for these princes to advise a man whose family had been slaughtered By a woman who had installed the worship of Baal and Asherah to suggest that he now began worshiping them. But clearly they understood their man. Oh, clearly they, and and by the way, the world is going to be cunning in these ways. They understood his character or lack thereof. Uh, Apparently, Joash wanted to be a popular king who brought success and prosperity to the nation. And sadly, by this time, the traditional approach was idolatry. That was, the, that was the traditional approach. That was the conservative approach, was to erect idols to all the various gods and to and to hedge your bets and to make use of all the religious resources. Today, the king's advisors would have brought him opinion polls. 62% of, of, of Judahites... Think Asherah poles are a good innovation. They would have brought testimonials of people who came and said, you know, I I bowed at the Baal altar and I had a child. They weighed this influence on him. He was not converted. And so he was easily led astray from the Lord. One might think that these counselors would have started at the back end of the Ten Commandments and slowly worked their way up front. They would have started with covetousness, the Tenth Commandment. And then to false testimony, working their way forward. Oh, no, they go right to the top. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, Exodus 20, verse 3. It shows that Joash had no knowledge of the Lord. He had no love for the Lord in his heart. How we are tested when we are going through a change, a challenge, when the voices of the world are seeking to lead us astray from God. You see, even though he had Jehoiada's influence, yes, he'd been devoted to the temple of the Lord, but now he's offering sacrifices to the false gods. Andrew Stewart writes, his previous profession of loyalty to the Lord was as vacuous as the idols he now served. He was easily turned from his profession of faith in God because it always had been a false one. Well, needless to say, the king of Judah's turn to idolatry made the Lord angry, verse 18. And wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this guilt of theirs. Yet God was forbearing. He sent prophets to speak his message of grace and repentance instead of immediately sending punishment. By the way, one of these prophets may have been the prophet Joel, who very likely was prophesying in Judah during the reign of Of king joash during these years by the way his name means the yahweh is god the lord is god a very fitting name for the witness needing to be given to king joash but he refused to heed the prophets and here's a third sign of an unconverted heart that it is hardened to god's word It's willing to listen to the counsel of the world. It's willing to be tempted to to go astray and to sin and to to follow ungodly ways. And then when the word of the Lord comes, it does not heed it. Verse 19, yet he sent the prophets among them to bring them back to the Lord. These testified against them, but they would not pay attention. Now the witness of these prophets remind us today what is the calling of a gospel minister. Faithful preachers are to proclaim God's Word so that people will come to know the Lord and will put their faith in Him. These prophets during Joash's later reign were blameless; they sought to return the king to the Lord. The problem was, despite his earlier professions, Joash did not possess true and personal faith. I think, as the chronicler is relating this failure, he's providing a word of a note of warning to his own readers. Many centuries later, at the end of Second Chronicles, he's going to make this note, that the Lord sent to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. Do you realize the preaching of God's word, the witness of God's word is God's mercy to you. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words, so the Lord judged them. That's the end summation that the chronicler gives at, of the entirety of this book. But the unconverted heart does not feel urgency when God's word calls to him or her to repent, even if the person involved is an ancient Jew from the line of David in the Old Testament, even if the person is a so-called Christian today. Well, what a valuable depiction this is for those who are raised in covenant homes, those who have long been associated with the church, who, who call themselves, they fill out, I'm a Christian. They tell people, I am a Christian, but you see, life is going to test that profession of faith. The unconverted heart will be easily swayed by the voices of the world, will be led astray from the Lord, and then will resent the rebukes of Scripture, the calls to repentance. Now, psalm 1, of course, identifies a true believer by his or her love for God's Word. It's not by chance that the first psalm says, Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates both day and night, Psalm 1, verse 2. In fact, Psalm 1, which is so valuable to us, it charts the very path that Joash and so many like him have followed in abandoning their profession. What's the first step in going away? Psalm 1, blessed is he who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. It starts by listening to the voice of man, giving heed to the advice of the unbelieving world. So Christians who want to honor the Lord, Christians who are facing a changing situation, going off to college, something like that. They should be careful about the company that they keep. They should be scrupulous in the influence that they allow to come into their ears and into their minds. But then second, David David talks about those who listen to worldly counsel and then begin developing the worldly habits. Turning astray from the Lord, blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners. Now associated with walking in the way of ungodliness. And ultimately it leads to a hardened character that confirms an unconverted heart nor sits in the seat of scoffers. It's because of this progression that the unconverted man or woman, or rather the converted man or woman, any professing Christian who wishes to be proved to be a true believer, they will give special counsel to what is coming into their ears. They will choose the word of God and those who speak the word of God over the voices of unbelieving culture. Well, in these ways, this Christian, Joash, is revealed as unconverted. Now, John Bunyan wrote his famous book on the life of a converted believer under the title of Pilgrim's Progress. Read it. There's some great new versions of Pilgrim's Progress. It's a great book. But for the unconverted Christian, It's not progress, it's regress. And we're going to see marked decline in Joash's life. Why? Because he was not born again. He did not have the life of God in his heart. He he was raised in the house of Jehoiada, the high priest, this great man of God. But now God is going to send a witness to him that is especially going to test him, is the witness of Jehoiada's son, a man with whom he would have grown up. He would have known him all of his life. It's Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada the priest. Well, here's the story. Following in the counsel of his ungodly advisers, Joash had erected altars to false gods. He soiled himself in idolatry. The Lord responded with prophets. The king ignored the prophets. So God sent Joash a messenger he would find it difficult to ignore. Verse 20, then the spirit of God clothed Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, and he stood above the people and said to them, thus says God, why do you break the commandments of the Lord? Now this description that God clothed, that God's spirit clothed him, is a great picture of the biblical doctrine of inspiration. It's exactly what Peter was talking about when he said that those men whose task it was to deliver the word of the Lord were carried along by the holy spirit he's clothed with the holy spirit so the words that he spoke were actually the words of God now the chronicler says that Zechariah stood above the people so he's going to confront the king in a public place it's the courts of the temple we learn and he's going to confront the king openly publicly undoubtedly loudly in a manner that Joash cannot brush aside First, he had a question. Why? Why have you broken the commandments of the Lord? That was a fair question. He'd been nurtured in true faith. He'd had the best examples. Why then is he violating the first commandment? Was he not fully informed that sin would not lead to prosperity, but to God's chastisement? Of course, the question was really a rebuke. And then verse 20, that rebuke is clear. Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. You see, the way to prosper is to seek the Lord. But since Joash had done the opposite, his forsaking of God would result in the Lord forsaking him. Under Joash's ungodly leadership, Judah had broken covenant with the Lord and was going to suffer divine abandonment. Now, we can be sure that the rulers, the princes of Judah, had wormed into the king's favor, having done that by flattery, that all along they had been puffing up his pride. So they were not going to take this public rebuke of the king sitting down. Instead, verse 21 says, they conspired against him, and by command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. And so standing in this public place, Zechariah was an easy target for the stones that now rained in on him. The royal advisors had no regard for the sanctity of the temple grounds. Matthew Henry reviles this deed. He calls it as horrid a piece of wickedness as perhaps any that we read in the entire history of the kings. The man they put to death was a sacred person. He was a priest. The place where they did it was a sacred place, the the, the grounds of the temple. Moreover, the chronicler leaves no doubt that it was by the command of the king. It was not just this spontaneous response of his underlings. It was by the command of the king that Jehoiada's son was stoned to death. Well, If we ever doubt how vile a deed the unconverted heart is capable of, we only need to consider this one, the shocking ingratitude, the sheer callousness of Joash's evil action. His own life had been spared by Jehoiada. Jehoiada had nurtured him all through his childhood at grave risk to his life. Undoubtedly, Zechariah was a part of that. We don't know if he was older or younger but he's a son of Jehoiada. Verse 22 says, Yet Joash the king did not remember the kindness that Jehoiada, Zechariah's father, had shown him, but killed his son. To make matters worse, although the chronicler does not say so, it's very clear that Zechariah was murdered on the spot where his father had earlier stood to place the royal crown on Joash's head. So here we see, the regress of the unconverted heart. We see just how much evil is possible in every heart where sin is reigning and has been allowed to flourish. If unrestrained by God's Holy Spirit, here's the question, could you do something like this? Could you so forget your debt? to a man like Jehoiada who'd saved you, nurtured you, provided for you in a crucial time of your life? The answer is yes, you absolutely could. It happens all the time from unconverted hearts. How many children forget the devotion their parents have showered on them, foolishly wanting only to free themselves from parental restraint so they dishonor their father and mother? But Worse than that, unbelievers show this kind of ingratitude to God every day. Everything that you are, everything that you have has come from the goodness of the Lord. James 1 17. Moreover, Jesus, his son came down from heaven in order to show God's mercy to sinners dying on the cross for sins. But unconverted people, especially those who claim to be Christians, despise the goodness of God trample and hold in contempt the blood of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 6, six says that through unbelief, they are crucifying again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Disloyalty, ingratitude, a self-centered willingness to do harm to others. This is the hallmark of the unconverted character. And Joash's unconverted life followed an inevitable downward course that led to sins that I'm sure at one time he would have considered inconceivable. But either Christ reigns or sin reigns, and there's a trajectory to both. What a dreadful wickedness he commits. Well, Joash's example shows, I think, that it is especially unconverted Christians who are able to do the maximum damage to the ministers of God's word and to the church. It's the members of the church, it's those who associate with believers, who who go through the acts of religion, who are present to slander and malign the faithful ministers of God's word. They are present to poison the atmosphere of the church, to conduct well-placed character assassination, if not actual murder. As such, it is the religious wicked man. It is the Christian unconverted woman who falls especially under God's wrath. Well, since Zechariah was cut off from delivering a more wholesome message, his dying words expressed the curse of God on unconverted Joash. Look at verse 22. When he was dying, he said, May the Lord see and avenge. Now, there is probably a wordplay involved with Zechariah's name. The word named Zechariah means Yahweh remembers the Lord remembers. And Joash had not remembered, we're told, the loyalty previously shown to him. But the Lord would remember Zechariah's fidelity as well as Joash's perfidity. And God would avenge the death of his servant. Now, interestingly, some commentators criticize Zechariah for dying with words of wrath and vengeance. But we remember that he is speaking as a prophet of the Lord. Who would execute this very judgment on the wicked king? Martin Selman exclaims, if God was inactive, the result would be anarchy. God's claim to sovereignty would be seriously jeopardized. This was a fitting and appropriate thing for him to say. Now, if we're tempted to criticize Zechariah's dying words, we should realize that Jesus Christ explicitly endorsed them. There was an occasion when Jesus was rebuking the Pharisees for their false claims of righteousness, and he exposed their hypocrisy, saying this, "'For you build the tombs of the prophets, and you decorate the monuments of the righteous. Thus you witness against yourself that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets.'" And then Jesus explicitly endorses Zechariah's dying wish. He may even have referred to him by name. He said, this is Matthew twenty-three, twenty-nine to 35. He says, on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Well, that seems to fit exactly what's going on here. Now, there is a problem. You may have noticed it. Jesus identifies him as Zechariah, the son of Barachiah, B-A-R-A-C-H-I-A-H. Now, you go to the book of Zechariah, the more famous prophet. I love the book of Zechariah. And you see that that prophet is named Zechariah, the son of Barachiah, B-E-R-E-C-H-I-A-H. Not exactly the same, the same consonants. But not the same vows. And, and that suggests that although the book of Zechariah does not say he was murdered at the temple, that Jesus is referring to him and not to the son of Jehoiada. I think there's a fair argument, at least, a persuasive argument, that Jesus is referring to the Zechariah we're studying. And by saying he's the son of Barakiah, that would mean he is the son of the Blessed One. But particularly what Jesus is doing when he says, from the blood of Abel, now that's from the first book of the Old Testament, to the blood of Zechariah, if it's this Zechariah, it's the last book of the Old Testament, the ancient Hebrew version. In fact, the Hebrew version today, the last book of the Old Testament in Hebrew is Second Chronicles. So Jesus is bookending the entire Old Testament history. He says, from Abel to Zechariah. Now, that is not Zechariah of the book of Zechariah. That is this Zechariah, the son of the blessed one. We must presume that is a reference to Jehoiada, his father. Now, whether or not Jesus did intend to specify this Zechariah, I think it's very likely that he did. He nonetheless explicitly endorses the priest's dying request. He says, on you will fall the blood of the prophets who were slain. And as we will see, the Lord did hear Zechariah's prayer. He did see, he did avenge his servant upon Joash. Well, let's look. We've seen the unconverted Christian revealed. We've seen the unconverted Christian's regress, but it leads to the unconverted Christian's death. And it was not long in coming that this vengeance came on Joash. In fact, it was the turning of the very year that the unconverted Christian received judgment at God's hand. Verse 23, at the end of the year, the army of the Syrians came up against Joash. Now, when a person spurns his or her Christian heritage, they are forgetting not only the blessing of God's mercy, but they are also forgetting the fury of his wrath. And all through the record of Israel's kings and the books of kings, the books of Chronicles, The Lord uses foreign invaders to execute his judgment until the final version of that, we're seeing it in Jeremiah, was the Babylonian conquest and the destruction of Jerusalem. So God's going to avenge Zechariah. He's going to judge the unconverted Joash. He does it in this case with the army of Syria. And how well targeted was the Lord's punishment? Look at verse 23. The army came down unexpectedly and they destroyed all the princes of the people from among the people, and sent all their spoil to the king of Damascus. These are presumably the very princes whose flattering counsel had led young Joash astray. Moreover, the Lord exacted punishment on Joash himself in a way that made clear that this was holy war, not in favor of Israel, but against it. Verse 24, though the army of the Syrians had come with few men. The Lord delivered into their hand a very great army because Judah had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. They remember all through the Old Testament. Gideon, he's got a very small number of people, but the Lord gives him victory. The conquest of, 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 of Canaan under Joshua, small Israelite armies destroy vast enemies, but see, that tide turns when the unconverted believer shows his or her colors and turns against the Lord the Lord turns against him or her. The enemy now will receive astonishing victories, a small Syrian force against a vastly larger, larger army of Judah. If Judah was determined to forsake the Lord, then they would come onto the receiving end of God's might. And by this means, the wrath of God in Judah's defeat was made evidence. This was a way of showing This isn't just a turn of fate. This is the judgment of the Lord. Well, after suffering this shattering defeat, Joash himself lay severely wounded. I think it's significant that the Syrians left him to God's fate. And here the unconverted Christian would come to his death in a manner that exemplified his own betrayal against the Lord and against Jehoiada. Look at verse 25. His servants conspired against him because of the blood of the son of Jehoiada the priest and killed him on the bed. That may mean that these were loyalists to Jehoiada. I don't think that's likely because of the wickedness of what they did. I think what he's saying is, it's God who's judging him. It's God who's avenging Jehoiada and his son Zechariah. And he uses an instrument appropriate to the man who's receiving the judgment. It was a betrayer. He will die by means of betrayal. That's what's going on. A fitting punishment on Joash's treachery towards the Lord and the house of Jehoiada. Having forsaken the Lord, Joash was forsaken by his court officials Having executed cruel violence on godly Zechariah, he receives cruel violence at the Lord's hand. Michael Wilcock comments He who is abandoned, he who abandons is abandoned. He who conspires is conspired against. He who kills is killed. Well, the final lines in the Chronicles account of Joash heap more contempt on this spiritually privileged son of the royal house, whose unconverted heart had so betrayed the Lord. First, the people expressed their opinion in verse 25. So he died, and they buried him in the city of David, but they did not bury him in the tombs of the kings. Now, Jehoiada, they did bury there. But see, people know, pe- the unconverted Christian, the person who's going through the outward a religion, but never has a living relationship with the Lord, people come to realize it and they hold him in contempt for his hypocrisy. By the way, as you know by now, that epitaph in the book of Chronicles makes a statement about the eternal destiny of the one buried. This one goes into shame. What a sad end to that boy king whose revealing had brought such hope to the nation. But in it is equally bitterly sad when a Christian child growing up who's brought forward for baptism to the light of the church and who grows up going through, I was this boy myself, going through the forms of Presbyterian religion. You know, even after I'd been long, after I'd I'd walked away from the Lord, when I finally came back to the church, I knew the glory of pottery. Oh, oh, I I knew the doxology. I'd been raised on these things. And there's the photographs of me as a little boy. How terrible it is when that privileged child of the covenant turns his or her back on the Lord. What a sad end to see this of young Joash. Well, secondly, the chronicler notes that the men who slew him were foreigners from abominable lineages. Verse 26, those who conspired against him were Zabad the son of Zimeoth, the Ammonite. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Shimrith, the Moabites, the Lord used instruments that were contemptible in a suitable way to him. A fitting commentary on Joash's worship of false gods. Oh, unconverted Christian, how essential it is that you no longer keep the Lord at arm's distance from your heart. No matter the outward activities, you must call upon the Lord and be saved. Well, it's been long since King Joash had his eternal uh, uh, destiny decided. He was an unconverted Israelite, a privileged member of the house of David, raised in high priest his life. He suffers an ignominious death and an eternal condemnation. His son, a sin of ingratitude, his violence against Zechariah the priest. Received a just recompense, the Lord saw and he averted. How essential it is for every unconverted person, the unconverted Christian, to come to the Lord and be saved. And we have a hope for that. And it comes not in Joash, but the hope of the unconverted person, the unconverted Christian is found in the one who fulfilled the promise that Joash himself betrayed. For while he turned his back on the Lord, Jesus, the son of that same line, the son of Joseph of the house of David, he kept faith with the Lord every day of his life and ministry. And not only was Jesus the final representative of the royal line, he's the ultimate representative of the priestly line. He's the ultimate prophet, and therefore we would expect That what was done to the prophets would be done to him, and so it was. He was put to death by an ungrateful, unconverted people. He was betrayed to suffer on the cross. And there we stand, looking at Jesus. The people looked at Zechariah the priest. What would he say? He said, see and avenge. But see, here's the hope for every unconverted person. We stand before the cross of Jesus. This is how my soul was saved. We stand before the Son of God on the cross, and he does not say to the Father, Behold and avenge. What does he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Here is where the unconverted can be converted. Here's where this foulest sinner finds forgiveness. Here's where new life comes in the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit whom Jesus sends. The Christ who speaks these words of forgiveness, is the Son of God. And he offers you at his cross the opportunity to be washed of your sin, to be renewed from evil into righteousness, to go from the false to the true, if you will confess and you will believe in his gospel. Now speaking with such grace from the cross, we see the very one who is recorded by the Apostle John We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Oh, respond to that grace and truth. Yield your heart to him. Be no longer an unconverted Christian. And therefore, when the followers of Christ, when our time comes, that we suffer betrayal. And even if we, like Zechariah, should suffer violence today, Let it be Jesus' example that we follow and not Jehoiada's son. Here's what Peter said. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you would follow in his steps. When he was reviled, he reviled not. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Father, we thank you for Jesus. And Father, we thank you for every privilege that we have as your people. We thank you for every baptized child. We thank you for every family in the church. We thank you for everyone on the membership rolls. But Father, we pray that you would save them all. And Lord, we know from biblical example and from experience that it can be a perilous place to be an unconverted person, to be present in the church, to know the hymns, to be familiar with, with the rituals to have the reputation of the believer but not the believer's heart so father i pray that you would hound the unconverted members of our church some of them are just young children lord and they're to grow into this and i pray you would grow them but lord cease not to pursue the hearts of us all because lord we can be joash we can have a regress we can have and we pray lord For people in our church who this is being revealed right now, we think of the college freshmen this year, but there's those who are older as well, those who are younger. Cause us to be wise, not to listen to the voices of the world, not to be led astray because you are our God, not to ever harden our hearts to your word. No, Father, cause us to look to him who was slain for us, who pleaded for our forgiveness, Help us to say, that is where I lay my sins. That is where I give my heart. I want to be Jesus. Lord, may it be so. We pray in his name, amen.